This is about becoming a culturally creative and contributing member of the human race. I get caught up in the spiral of, am I doing enough? Work has become the idol that far too many people are worshiping at. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. I'm Natasha Moore. And I'm Justine Toe. And today is our first Seen and Heard episode of 2023. I always love these. Yay, me too. This is our <laughs> chance to have a water cooler conversation about the books we've been reading, the shows we've been streaming, the movies we've been watching. Um, I mean, there is not a real water cooler. No, there's not. <laughs> um, and also, I work from South Australia these days, so we're not usually even in the same office, but we are today. Yes, it's very good. Um, and we didn't plan this exactly, but all our entries for this episode of Seen and Heard have kind of coalesced around a theme, maybe not a surprising one, given everything that's going on at the moment, uh, technology and our hopes and fears surrounding it. And those hopes and fears, at least in my case, are many. Oh, I share them too. So <laughs> yeah, just know. we're on the same side. Here. But <laughs> I, I wrote about this earlier this year for Eureka Street in the wake of the release of the AI chatbot, ChatGPT, which was an astonishing and alarming moment for me. And let's be honest, it puts at risk a whole bunch of jobs, including ours. Mm, um, maybe. Maybe. Uh, but I was struck by the utopian dreams of Sam Altman. He is the 37-year-old CEO of OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT. And I just was struck by this sort of um, sense of a lack of history in the way he talks about. This Simon is a great idea, former isn't it? history well, teacher. <laughs> he recognizes there are major problems looming with this, potential problems. But his solution is, well, we're just going to have to get together as an international community and agree on things. As we as so we often are good at doing. And I'm thinking, when's that ever happened? So <laughs> yeah. I wasn't very comforted by that. But look, maybe that's you know, getting ahead of ourselves. Look, I reckon every other week someone is saying that this is a bad idea. Was it only a couple of weeks ago when Jeffrey Hinton, the so-called AI godfather Jeffrey Hinton, recently resigning from Google saying, we're playing with fire because what's coming? Mass unemployment, disinformation, reality collapse, even like rogue state actors. You know, we, we don't want this stuff falling into the hands of the wrong kind of people. So he's saying, and I feel like, do we really want to open Pandora's box? Because how does that turn out is all I can say. <laughs> no, that's how I feel. And the, the developers themselves are the people telling us this. That's what worries me the most. Well, did you hear Ezra Klein say that he speaks to, he's the New York Times columnist. He speaks to a lot of people in this space. He keeps asking the same question of them. He says, what chance do you think this has of like ending humanity? People say between 10 and 30%. And, he, and he's like, you're still working on it? You know, so. yeah. Maybe I'm the hopeless optimist in the team here. Yes, you are. But in this I case. just am a bit dubious about this. About, I mean, there was a really interesting article. We've all been reading about this, right, in The Atlantic um, just recently, which was like the apocalypse that you think is coming through AI it's not like you think. It's going to be way more boring than that. Like what we're actually talking about is more of what we see already in terms of you being kind of a slave to your inbox and, you know, life being a bit degraded. It talked about, you know, what we've got coming is a tsunami of forgettable mass-produced content and that this will kind of 
you know, it's supposed to free us up because it's so efficient, but instead it actually just means we're meant to be more productive. We're going to be more stressed. It turns us into kind of middle managers, which is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that's my point. (laughs) Even if it's not as cataclysmic as Justine and I fear. Yes. This isn't good either. But I think it's resistible. And this is the thing we want to talk about. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so let's get stuck into the conversation. Firstly, Natasha, you've been watching something on Binge, evidently, called Mrs. Davis. Is it okay if I proxy? Sorry, she'll speak to me through here, and then I'll just repeat whatever she says. Not she. It. It is a machine. She wants to talk. Talk, 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 talk to you. If I say no, it's just going to send someone else, isn't it? Probably. Mrs. Davis is all-knowing and all-powerful. She not only knows you're coming for her, but she wants you to. Are you all out of your minds? Hey, Mom. Natasha, I've only seen the first episode, and I saw a review uh, which dropped the phrase, Plot Tornado. Is the show as nuts as it sounds? Oh my goodness. Yes, totally accurate. It is completely bonkers. I will try to explain it, but I'm not even sure I know how, either without spoilers, but also because it sounds insane. And I don't know how they pull it off, but they do. So here goes there's this nun, Simone. She's great. She is implacably opposed to the algorithm, Mrs. Davis. So she's known. It is known in the English-speaking world as Mrs. Davis. In other countries, it's known as kind of mama or some version (laughs) of mother. People voluntarily have this algorithm in their ear, kind of telling them, like just helping them with life, loneliness, efficiency, you know, whatever. So it's an AI presence. Yes. Apparently there is no more uh, war. There's no more famine. Things work now. But there are magicians, though. Uh, (laughs) Yes. So Simone, the nun, does not truck with Mrs. Davis. And she thinks that Mrs. Davis killed her father, who was a magician. Um, Simone is also kind of this vigilante who like goes around on this horse and like exposing charlatan magicians. It's complicated. There's, There's a faith theme here. There's like a magic theme and there's, you know, technology and our faith in the magic Mm. of technology. But um, it gets more bonkers because really the plot of the series is that Mrs. Davis wants Simone to go on a quest to find the Holy Grail. Okay. And I think, (laughs) so in every episode, right, it goes off on some tangent that you're like, what on earth is happening? And it's hilarious. But you're also like, how can they possibly reel this back in from the chaos that is unfolding? But they do. how this got made, Every time. I'm so glad it got made. And I think maybe the reason the bonkersness works is because Simone thinks it's just as bonkers as you do. Yeah, like, so she's your so reality she's check. She's just an amazing character. Well, mm. I'm wondering about asking what hallucinogens the writers were on. It <laughs> sounds question. quite something. But, so why a nun, Natasha? Is the religion aspect there just to poke fun or is there a good reason No, for not it at all. What? So I think the nun thing works on multiple levels. It's not a token thing. I mean, to some extent, I think... There are things about her being a nun that makes her particularly, I guess, algorithm resistant Mm. (laughs) because she lives, you know, in this commune, like a convent 
out in the desert. They make jam. They, yeah. you know, the nuns hang out. They have celebrations. They look each other in the eye. There's no Mrs. Davis there, right? There's an embodied so, physicality yeah. to what they're doing. So it's kind of the, the opposite what? thing to kind of what everyone out in the world is doing. Mm. And I guess because she's a nun, it makes sense that she is taking her cues from somewhere else. Like she kind of does have someone in her ear telling mm. her what to do, but it's God, it's not the all-knowing, all-powerful algorithm. Yeah, mm. that's but at the same time, there's a love triangle or something <laughs> with Jesus. Is there a <clears throat> viewer advisory thing here, especially for like a Christian? Look, it's not a Christian series by any means. And particularly by the end, the theology is fairly whack, right? <laughs> like the, the whole conception of the Trinity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit is like, the off place. the charts strange <laughs> and okay like if you're a christian you're just gonna have to roll with that or else not watch it but also there's some really really interesting and thought-provoking elements of faith in there including simone's relationship with jesus who is her husband like and that's she's a bride of christ yeah that's what nuns conceive of themselves yeah. as being and you know there's a whole strand in theology which is about the intimacy of that and so I think that some of that is challenging and kind of weird set in a modern context. Yes but I'm wondering if they meant something different in the show to what a well, nun I don't know. Have mean. you read Teresa of Alba? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It gets pretty steamy. It's pretty full on. <laughs> okay. like, and there's a lot of other religious kind of imagery and stuff as well. You know, there's a kind of belly of the whale thing happening. And, like, I'm some afraid talk to of ask. resurrection. Like the actually the depiction of prayer, I really enjoyed, mm. and it's, I thought it was a really beautiful and interesting way of doing prayer, which is not something you see much done on screen. So tell me, how evil is Mrs. Davis in this show? Yeah, that's a really good question. And partly it might be a spoiler to say. Yeah. Partly I can't say. Yeah, okay. um, but there is this great scene kind of in the middle of the series where someone is proxying, as in someone is being Mrs. Davis. They've got her in her ear and they're just repeating what she says to Simone. And Mrs. Davis says this thing to her. She Simone knows that she's lied about something. And Mrs. Davis goes, my users aren't responsive to the truth. They're much more engaged when I tell them exactly what they want to hear. And and the person who's proxying is like, oh, well, that sucks. Like, <laughs> she's like, what? I didn't, I didn't know that. You've been deceiving me this whole time. So I think How interesting. there's a kind of, it's not even so much that if there is no war or famine, like that's great. There's just a question there about like, What's is safety and it? satisfaction and kind the, of. The goal. Yeah. Yeah. At the end, and I feel like this is not a spoiler, but one of the really telling things that Simone says to Mrs. Davis is, you weren't made to care, you were made to satisfy. Because oh, she's an right. app, right? Yeah. So she does just tell people what they want to hear because she's just meant to keep them happy. Yeah. She's not, she doesn't have any deeper care for them. So I feel like at the end of the day with Mrs. Davis, what it left me with is this sense of, actually, it would be better if the world were a better organized and more efficient place, but that won't actually get to the heart of what's wrong with us. Like there aren't actually any shortcuts to building a good life. (laughs) 
Simon, you're up next. So George Saunders, you love this guy. He's an author. And you have raved about his short story, Liberation Day, which is fairly recent, as well as Escape from Spiderhead, which is a little bit older. And that story was adapted into a Netflix film starring Chris Hemsworth. Hello again. Sorry I'm late, Mr. Epnesty. Not late at all. That's Spiderhead. We're proud of our work. Your presence in this facility, while technically a punishment, is a privilege. Where have you been? Drug study. In science, we have to explore the unknown. They've been testing me up and down. A lot weirder stuff than usual. This is new frontier stuff here. Let's do this. Our work will save lives. Not just one life, many lives. We're making the world a better place. Now, you didn't love Spiderhead, which is the film adaptation, but does the trailer get at what the original story is trying to convey? Because it sounds like there's plenty of utopian thinking there. We're going to make the world a better place. Yeah, I didn't love the film adaptation, really. It really departed from what I think was the seriousness of the original story and ended up in a sort of an action film by the end. But um, Everybody loves an action film. Well, me too. (laughs) I like them. But in this case, I thought it was unnecessary. Mm. But the premise is the same and the setup's the same. So yes, that part I kind of appreciated. In the original story and in the film, you have the, the narrator who's held in a prison research facility where the inmates can sort of trade off time that they haven't served yet to be guinea pigs in experiments using mm-hmm. new drugs that they're going to test out on these people. So it's a really... It's a dirty business, basically. Yeah, it really is. It sounds very black sinister. Um, so they have these packs on them where they uh, sit in a room and the experimenter says, okay, we're now going to give you this drug. And they weirdly have to say, yes, I give you permission to yeah, do that. Yeah, there's a lot of consent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> They've signed the form kind of thing. And then they're given these drugs which will test their perception, their ability to withstand pain, uh, their mental fortitude, and, yes, their libido. So it's not a PG movie, I think. No. Okay. But, you know, these are kind of um, chemical experiments uh, where technology is the dominant thing and it's sort of a very utilitarian thing. Like, so here's these poor prisoners that are going to be experimented on, but don't worry, it's all for the betterment of humankind later. Mm. So heaps of people will be served by this eventually, but that's forgetting the kind of immediate. It's all about the greater good. Mm. That Mm. logic. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's not dissimilar to a more recent um, story from George Saunders, Liberation Day. I know you've read this. I've just read this, Simon. I did not enjoy it. You didn't enjoy it. (laughs) I do like George Saunders. I love Lincoln in the Bardo, but maybe I don't like stories told by AI or, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's kind of an acquired taste too. And and it's very strange. I mean, he's quite a unique writer, I think, Mm. George Saunders. But tell us what you felt about it. Yeah, so it's one of those stories that kind of teaches you how to read it as you go along, yes. like Lincoln in the Bardo, mm, that's actually. Right. You don't know um, what's going on. It's no. going to persist and then eventually um, you realize. But it's clearly some kind of, you know, being who is in service of 
a human family, yeah. um, apparently to produce some kind of art. This guy is like a writer. Maybe this is why it was so striking for you. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this is what people in our kind of line of work yeah. would use. But, you know, from the perspective of someone who's being used in that way and seems perfectly willing to be and wants to be, like, here's a line to give you a feel. Stretching after nine days in the shape of the letter X feels, as one might imagine, both good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I love about this too, and, and Spiderhead's the same thing, you have this sort of setup, but it always goes badly. Like mm. it, it, you know, Saunders has this, it's kind of comical, but there's a very serious side to it. That's true in uh, Liberation well, Day. It sounds grotesque, really. Yes, like it's like definitely. a real warping. Of... It's gross. Yeah. I think yeah. I just found it really mm. icky. It is that. And you're meant to, but I, yeah, I didn't enjoy reading it. I can understand it. You, you wouldn't necessarily enjoy it, but you can. I was sort of admiring the craft, I guess, was what I, what I felt. So is this one, Simon, where both with Liberation Day and Spiderhead, this is again this theme of kind of a world dominated by technique and efficiency? Is that what's going on? Yes, among many other things. But yes, he, he's poking fun at these things, the way language is abused to justify terrible behavior and what is lost when efficiency is the dominant thing and that it overrides the humanity of the people involved. So Saunders is in lots of his stories critiquing American life, the rampant capitalism, a utilitarian ethic, you know, treating people as a means to an end and this sort of stuff. So, so you have in Spiderhead, the guy dishing out the experiments, whose name is Abnesty, um, sort of abnegation of responsibility, mm, I think. Is kind of, there's I all like this sort that. of thing. And he's forever kind of justifying his behavior and talking about how nice he is to the people they're experimenting on. He remembers their birthdays. He shares stuff about his own <laughs> life. And he's always saying to me, do you think I like this? It's hard for me too. But, you know, yeah. gosh, it's going to be good when we, you know, sort all this oh, out. Wow. So he's sort of showing the way that the humanity of the people being experimented on is really degraded. But so too for the people administering these experiments. Do you know, it's so strange you should say this because just half an hour ago, one of our colleagues got an email from her rental agent saying they were going to raise the rent $100 after having already raised it $40 like in the last six months or something. Yeah. And the agent ends this terrible email with this very bright, have a nice day. Yeah. So it's like this like dehumanizing system. I'm a nice person as in the agent, but you know, sucks for you. <laughs> yeah, too bad. That's exactly what this is about and the way language is used and abused actually oh, in that to way. kind of hide mm. terrible things. Oh my gosh. So George Saunders has been called by someone the most moral writer around today mm. in a positive way, <laughs> not yes. as an accusation. <laughs> um, he's a Buddhist himself, like he has a faith commitment. Does that kind of come through here? Well, I think there's a lot of um, religious themes in George Saunders' writing. He is a Buddhist these days. He has had a very strong Catholic background as well that he talks about a lot. Uh, you've read Lincoln in the Bardo. You will have seen those sort of themes in that book and, and lots of others as well. So, yes, and I think he's a bit of a prophet. He's warning us about modern life and the things that are good for us and the things that the, tra you know, the traps that we're falling into. It's interesting that Chris Hemsworth, who played the, the key character in... As in the bad guy? The spider head, yes. Yeah. He picks up on this. He, one of the things he did to prepare for the role was to study tech entrepreneurs, politicians, oh and dictators... Dictators! <laughs> ...who could amass huge followings by convincing people that they, what they were doing was for the betterment 
of humankind. Oh. And he said that's what he did to prepare for the I role. I wonder if he told them that's what he was <laughs> And I'm glad he didn't study religious leaders as well. <laughs> well, he may have. I don't know. But there was a quote from him that I read in one of the, the reviews, which I thought picked up on some of this, where he said, it's this idea of are we or should we be left to our own devices? Do we need an outside influence to intervene and save us from ourselves? Abnesti, he believes it's him. He's going to play God and save millions of lives, which is often the argument from many individuals who end up doing great harm. So bring us home, Justine, with a look back at the movie Her, as well as the novel Every Version of You by Grace Chan. Here's the trailer to Her. Mr. Theodore Twombly, welcome to the world's first artificially intelligent operating system. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Okay. Are you social or antisocial? I guess I haven't been social in a while. How would you describe your relationship with your mother? Thank you. Please wait as your operating system is initiated. Hello, I'm here. Hi. Hi, I'm Samantha. Good morning, Theodore. Good morning. You have a meeting in five minutes. You want to try getting out of bed? <laughs> You're too funny. Okay, good, I'm funny. I want to learn everything about everything. I love the way you look at the world. So what was it like being married? There's something that feels so good about sharing your life with somebody. How do you share your life with somebody? Her was released 10 years ago, can you imagine? To refresh your memory, actually, I don't think you've seen it, Natasha. I haven't seen it. But Joaquin Phoenix plays this lonely divorcee called Theodore, and he falls in love with his AI called Samantha. I think it is really good to revisit her very briefly because the future her speculated is kind of one that we're living today. We now have Replica, uh, which is an AI that bills itself as, quote, the companion who cares, end quote. So you can customize this AI to your personality. It is very supportive and deeply interested in you and apparently doesn't feel that different from chatting with someone long distance. So I'm yeah, like, you sent me this spooky. article, Justine, the ABC article about people who, like the company behind Replica, made changes overnight to the chatbot. So people have been essentially dating these bots, like messaging them back and forth like it's their boyfriend or girlfriend. Becoming attached to them. Yeah. yeah. And then they'd made changes because there were problems with, you know, children using the bot and intimacy and stuff. And so suddenly overnight, the bots just stopped kind of responding to those kinds of, and, and people then felt really rejected and upset. And, you know, this one woman who, because this is how we date now, right? Yes. Like no, right. often That's people so and message real. back and forth. Yeah. And you weren't feeling worried about this at the beginning of the episode? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really sad. It's, sad. it's just another it sure permutation is. of the way that... Of sad. Um, <laughs> well, the way that we kind of use our devices to avoid human connection. Like, yeah, yeah. No, it does. Do. It does feel like that. And in that article, one of the users was saying that she, once her boyfriend, internet boyfriend, changed overnight because of the company's adaptations, then she said that she wanted to resurrect him on another platform. Mm. And I was like, okay. Anyway, yeah. the resurrection thing is really interesting because every version of you, which is the other thing that I want to talk about, uh, uses this kind of Christian language to kind of track what's going on here as well. Okay, so Justine, every version of you, what's this novel about? Okay, so it imagines Australia in the 2080s. 
And by then, climate change has done a real number on us. The the Yarra has dried up entirely. No one can remember what uh, fresh produce tastes like. It's all lab-grown meat, etc. People can plug into what they call Gaia. It's like this digital utopia. So think back to the Matrix where people were in pods and then there's this goo that transmits electrical signals, da-da-da. This is kind of the experience. They, they physically lie in these pods that upload them to Gaia. And Gaia has become the replacement world, basically. And Tao Yi, who's the main protagonist, she is kind of feels a bit ambivalent about Gaia. Like most of her social life takes place in Gaia, let's say. Her boyfriend, Naveen, has chronic kidney issues and he would like to be uploaded to Gaia indefinitely. And that becomes a possibility within the book. And so that's the story. Do you upload or do you not upload? Um, And it's fascinating because once um, he does upload, and this is where the crossover with her becomes really clear, he becomes less than human in a way. So it's a really interesting idea about how much do our bodies and being limited in time and space physically, how much does that make us who we are? Because once he is freed, quote unquote, from his body, um, he it's like he can multitask as infinitely as the internet in a way. So imagine being able to go down every rabbit hole you want to infinitely. Terrible, <laughs> but Justin. come on, you kind of want it too, though, right? Like every side <laughs> interest I... <laughs> could be your main interest. Do you know what I mean? Like there's something really attractive in a way. So it does kind of, mm, you yeah. know, it, it pulls us it's in terms of... the allure of... Of, of magic, right? Yeah, it is. It it's is like magic. out limits. Yeah. So, constraints. Thing is, with her, that movie, the AI Samantha eventually outgrows Theodore. So she ends up having multiple kind of oh, no, relationships. Leaves, leaves him to it. And she ends up escaping in some ways the AI world and goes somewhere else, who knows where. Mm. So this actually becomes the fate of Naveen, the boyfriend who uploads. Like he, Because he can multitask and go down every rabbit hole, he's no longer human in a kind of meaningful way. So he it's can't a, relate to her anymore. Well, he still loves her, just the same way that in some ways Samantha still loves Theodore. But their planes of existence are no longer reconcilable. Yeah. 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 So it really raises a lot of interesting questions. If you didn't have your body, would you still be you? You know, at the same time, I'm not a jerk. I don't want Naveen to have to suffer. I want his suffering to be eliminated. But does that mean eliminating the body? <laughs> mm. <laughs> and does so- that mean eliminating him? Yeah. Essentially. It is. It's a fascinating kind of question. So you talked there, Justine, about Gaia as kind of a digital heaven are there a lot of religious resonances here? Is the author doing that? Well, it's funny because I just interviewed Grace Chan, the author, and she was not necessarily conscious and making those um, references consciously. But yeah, I mean, what do you do with this? She says that uploading became Naveen's salvation. You know, later she feels sinful for smelling his T-shirt that he no longer needs because he's mm. no longer has a body. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's all this sort of stuff here. And, you know, in Gaia, there is no more limitation. She says something like, you know, he never loses, he's never out of breath in Gaia. And my head goes instantly to that line from Isaiah where it's like, the Lord will renew their strength. They will run and not grow faint. And I was like, (laughs) wow, this is like, this is heaven for atheists, basically, digital (laughs) utopia. And when I think about Zuckerberg's metaverse, when I think about um, even Elon Musk and his desire to terraform Mars, the answer is always elsewhere. It's just, it's not this planet. It's not this earth, not this body. We have to overcome our limitations. That's both a very ancient as well as contemporary 
dream. Well, yeah, I guess people would call this Gnosticism, right? Mm. Like the, the secret knowledge will liberate you from the In, material, which is that's like right. fallen it's and broken. It's all about the immaterial sort of spiritual Yeah, reality. that's right. So Justine, does the novel come down firmly on one side or the other to upload or not upload? Well, I don't want to give anything away, but I will say that as more and more people upload, Earth falls into further ruin, and it's already in a banged-up state by the 2080s, right? So she writes this line, funding extra Gaia infrastructure isn't a priority for an intra-Gaia government. Mm. I think that feels really real, right? Like, as soon as there's another option, why would we invest in the one that we have? So I think the Elon Musk wanting to terraform Mars kind of feels like that a little bit. And in some ways, it reminds me again of the strangeness of the Christian story, because if we think our salvation lies in escaping the earth, you know, what do you do with a God who in the incarnation becomes flesh, like is born into this material life? And, you know, as the story goes on, the resurrection, when he rises back from the dead, it's not to a ghostly kind of no, existence. It's a, it's it's a physical one, right? Mm. So, and that kind of, I guess, is the the foretaste of a renewed world. So it's not about us. You don't have to escape this world. No. You can actually stay here, and it's it will be renewed. It's the reverse of what's being depicted here, where you're sort of escaping off into some ether. Look, I do remember at the end of the Richard Johnson lecture that we had with Andy Crouch, there was a question about what it means to live well now. And Andy said so beautifully that living a truly human life meant living like a humble, ordinary, everyday kind of life. Uh, And that was the most transcendent and godlike thing to do. So here he is to take us out from the episode. It is very tempting when you read Taylor and other people who are trying to articulate what it's like to actually believe in the transcendent in a secular age, in a secular imaginary to think that our job then is to be the agents of transcendence. We've got to reintroduce kind of that eternal dimension to life. And I would just observe that if you are Christian, you are indebted, to say the least, to a story that is is strangely different from that, in which rather than somehow the infinity being disclosed into a human story. The infinite becomes a very finite person who both contemporary accounts and the prophetic kind of anticipation indicate was not anyone we would even notice. He had no form that we should desire him, no comeliness that we should be attracted to him. And this is why I think it's a mistake to think, oh, it's my job to go out and be really transcendent with people. It's actually my job to go out and be very humbly human in the world because that's that's the pattern that I as a Christian am bound to follow in Jesus. And part of why we have to really take that on board is that the other way leads to grandiosity. You're never gonna do great things, uh, but you can do small things with great love, right? That's uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta. And, And that's a very, very humbling idea. But it is the thing that dethrones magic. It takes a huge amount of faith to think. The only thing that I need to do if I do follow the Christian faith is be my small self, and that somehow through that clay jar, eternity is going to shine. But that's actually the only safe way to live in a world that's still pursuing magic. You 
You've been listening to Life and Faith from CPX with me, Simon Smart, Natasha Moore and Justine Toe. We've been talking about the TV series Mrs Davis. You can watch that on Binge. Also, George Saunders' short stories Escape from Spiderhead and Liberation Day, as well as the movie Spiderhead. And finally, every version of you by Grace Chan with a sideline there uh, for the 10-year anniversary of the movie Her. Yeah, I think we overstuffed the episode. But anyway, <laughs> we may have talked I, about many things. I had a lot of fun. I hope you had a lot of fun too. So please do leave us a rating or review. We always like reading them and it's a way you could honestly show just a little bit of love. You know, it doesn't <laughs> don't make me feel like I'm in a relationship with AI, which you know, it's don't never ghost there. us. No, that's right, yeah, don't ghost us. Yeah, tell us why you like us. We always like to read it. And uh, have a nice day. <laughs> Special thanks as always to our producer, the thoroughly embodied Alan Douthwaite. <laughs> Next week. Change the paradigm and say, okay, we've got instead the universal caregiver ideal where everybody is responsible for care. And actually you turn up in a workplace and there's this bright young spark of a male and he's got this sparkling CV, but the interviewing panel looks at him and says, there is no evidence here that you have ever done any care work. Where is the evidence of community work, of parental leave, elder care? A good fit for our organisation is someone with a strong ethic of care. <laughs>